Uh, turn your Bibles this morning to the book of Job, chapter 8. I use the term loosely, but the second of Job's friends speak to him. Bildad uh, preaches a, a briefer sermon than Eliphaz. Uh, our, our best guess is they're going in age of seniority. So Eliphaz, the oldest, Bildad, next down, will end ultimately with friend number four, uh, who is the youngest, who shows up a little bit later. Bildad interprets Job's complaints um, in a very specific way, and really he, he interprets Job's response to Eliphaz and his prayer to God to mean that, that Job is claiming that what's happening to him really is unjust, it's not fair. And since God is in control of all things, this would mean that, that Job is accusing God of being unjust or unfair. And this absolutely enrages Bildad. He can't believe that this is what Job is saying. And so he really goes on the offensive. And whereas Eliphaz had thinly veiled um, comments and animosity, Bildad doesn't hold back much at all. And he is angry, he's irritated, he's rebuking Job in ways that are just astoundingly unkind. And yet the source of it is because Bildad has given in to a very small error, uh, one that I, I actually think is pretty common and prominent among most Christians. And yet it has this massive, what we might call a butterfly effect. You know what butterfly effect is? It's, it actually was a term coined by a mathematician uh, a long time ago. And it's the idea that very small changes can have massive effects. And they call it a butterfly effect in the sense that the death of one butterfly could reduce the, the wind created by that one butterfly's wind, wings and that that could result in the lack of a windstorm and the lack of a tornado and it could affect global weather systems by one butterfly. And, uh, and so there's been all this research, is the butterfly effect real, is it false? And, and it just boils it down to this one idea that a very small change, something very tiny, could have massive effects. And uh, and so there's people out there that talk about modern-day stories of the butterfly effect. Uh, one, one lady talked about she was waiting for an elevator, and she looked, and they had a potted plant on both sides of the elevator, uh, and they weren't quite even, right? And so a little bit OCD moment. She reached over, and she pulled one out about two inches, so they were even. She's like, oh, that's perfect. Right after she did that, uh, a guy comes running by, and he hit the plant she just moved, just the edge of it, and broke his toe. Uh, his friend threw him in his car, said, we've got to rush you to the hospital, you got a broke toe. On the way to the hospital, they were in a horrific car accident, and the guy ended up in a coma for two weeks. Moral of the story, don't move potted plants, ladies. Uh, another guy talked about going out for dinner. He and his roommate wanted pizza, and, and so he was running out to get pizza. And while he's on his way to get pizza, his roommate calls him and says, dude, don't, don't get pizza. I've got a terrible stomach bug. I, I'm super sick. And so the guy's like, oh, okay. So he, instead he went to a restaurant, ordered dinner, just going to eat alone. And he happened to meet a lady there. Um, Ten years later, they're married and they have two kids, all because his roommate was riding, calling up Ralph on the porcelain phone, right? Uh, so small things with massive effects. And so what is Bildad's real error? What is this small error? Well, I, I think his thinking is common and it's normal. And I dare say it's the bent of most people's hearts probably even in this room. And I think, interestingly, we're, more, we're quicker, we're more prone to apply this to ourselves than we are even to others. And it's this idea. If I'm suffering, what did I do wrong? What have I done to deserve this? 
And, and we might say that in kind of a um, throwaway way, like, what did I do for this? But in real pain, in real grief, in deep suffering, that idea, we might, we might think of it as a theological earworm, right? Just wheedles its way into our hearts and minds. What have I done wrong to suffer like this? And what Bildad does is he takes that and he applies that to Job. Clearly then, Job has done something to deserve this suffering. And so where the attitude of um, Eliphaz was to rebuke Job, for Bildad to now hear Job blame God in a way, Bildad feels like he needs to defend God. And what we're going to learn this morning is that small errors about suffering, they can just have disastrous effects in life. And so what we want to do is, is Bildad's sermon is is conversational um and where i want to go first is the source of his authority why does bildad make this claim on what basis does bildad make this claim and it's really out of faulty human reason and we can see it in verses 8 through 10 we'll work our way back through the first part of the text get to the end um, but i want you to see where it comes from right so bildad says this in chapter 8 verse 8 for inquire please of bygone ages consider what the fathers have searched out for we are but of yesterday and know nothing, for our days on earth are a shadow. Will they not teach you and tell you and utter words out of their understanding? And essentially what, what Bildad is saying is we can look at all the world around us and we can reason out that people suffer because they do bad things and people are blessed because they do good things. Now, Bildad has bad news. He has bad authority. He has a bad source of information. Uh, Romeo famously is, receives a false report, runs. He's told his, Juliet, his wife Juliet's dead, runs and finds her in the tomb. Spoiler alert, right? you know, but it's been around a couple hundred years. Um, finds her in the tomb. She's asleep, but he's been told she's dead. He sees her sleeping, and assumes she's dead, and he kills himself. He operates on bad authority, bad news. Edgar Welch believed the conspiracy theory of QAnon that cosmic pizza in D.C., Washington, D.C., was a hotbed of uh, child sex slavery. And so he has two little daughters and decided he needed to protect his children and the other children in this world, loaded up his guns, went to D.C., went into cosmic pizza, fired off a few rounds, and held people hostage. Well-intentioned, wildly misinformed. And so when we act on bad authority, bad news, misinformation, uh, it's become a byword in our culture now, fake news. We, we know there's so much we can't even trust that's out there anymore. When Bildad is saying, what I see is historically accurate, Job, we haven't lived long, but we can see everyone who's come before us. Observationally, you're suffering because you did bad things. That's my source of authority. And it really forms an empty religious system. And lots of religions in the world are based on this same idea. Uh, karma, from Hinduism. And karma literally as a word means actions or deeds, good or bad. And it shows up in the Hindu religious document called the Rigva, and it holds this, I quote, Currently we understand karma as the source or cause of actions, as moral duty, and as the fate or destiny arising from one's past lives. They believe in reincarnation. So basically, karma means actions, either good or bad, 
uh, come back on a person either in this life or the next life. Suffering then in Hinduism is a result of your own actions in this life or a previous one, and that's why you're being punished. And so they would look at even a child that's suffering and say, well, that's just their reincarnation of their past life. They're suffering because of what they did in a previous life. That's how they would answer what would seem like innocent suffering or puzzling pain. It's reincarnation. It's karma. This is coming back on you. Islam. Islam has the book of Job. They rework it in the Quran. And in the Quran, Job's suffering is a test intended to bring him to bigger blessings. So you're going through suffering so that God can make you better and give you better things. They interpret it that way because they get to the end of the book of Job, they see all the blessings, and they essentially say, so the suffering is worth it. And so how Job responds to suffering and how he responds to life, followers or adherents of Islam respond to life as how they'll be saved. And it's really kind of its own version of karma. And it boils down to this, let my good deeds outweigh my bad deeds. I quote from one of the chapters in the Quran. They whose balances shall be heavy shall be blessed. But they whose balances shall be light, they shall lose their soul abiding in hell forever. Famously, the most popular, prominent, and successful fundraiser in Great Britain, well-known, celebrity status, um, closest you could come here to the States is a rock star rolled up together with Dick Clark, Ryan Seacrest, the whole nine yards. He raised millions of pounds to build hospitals, uh, wellness centers, healthcare centers, was a personal advisor to Prince Charles for a long period of time. And in his interviews, he would frequently say, I just want my good deeds to outweigh my bad deeds. Everybody was shocked. No one had done more good deeds than this guy. He was the largest philanthropist in Great Britain's history. And it was only after he was dead that over 400 accusations of sex abuse came forward. He was trying to pay off his evil deeds. Because bad things happen to bad people and good things happen to good people. It's the same kind of mentality that we see in islam or in hinduism and that bildad holds it's this system do good get good do bad get bad he's so bold as to make the claim that this observation is the is the is what we've seen from everyone before us consider what the fathers have searched out this isn't just me. This is the authorities before us. Eliphaz relied on a satanic vision for his authority. I've had this vision. That's my authority. Bildad re- relies on empty religion and past observation. And so even in the New Testament, when you see people sick, you see the claim, well, who sinned, this man or his parents? Do bad, get bad. And so whether it's Hinduism, Islam, or warped Judaism in the New Testament, or even Christians today, God, what have I done for this? I know I've done something. And you start grocery listing every possible sin that you may have committed, asking to God to forgive you. And so even if you've never applied it to someone else, maybe you've applied it to your own heart. Somehow believing you deserved this. The reality is it's far too simplistic of a way of thinking. Is error... And it has disastrous consequences. And so it's not just the empty religion, it's a shallow understanding of this world. 
right? Job knows that this isn't the case. He knows it experientially. I mean, Job knows he's done nothing to deserve this. Job is, Job is not claiming to have never sinned, but chapter 1 told us he was blameless and upright. Job knows he's done nothing to deserve the death of 10 children, the loss of everything, the abandonment of his wife, and now afflicted with this horrible skin condition that he feels like is just going to kill him. Maggots crawling across his skin. He knows he didn't do anything to deserve this. And so experientially, he knows this. But we have to ask, are Bildad's sources trustworthy? Should Bildad have known better? Right? In the absence of all the New Testament and all these other, should Bildad have known better? And I would argue, absolutely, he should have, and so should we, even more so. There are three errors that we can see. First of all, just observationally, sometimes the wicked prosper and the righteous suffer. Job will say this later, out of his own mouth. It's the great cry of David the psalmist. It has happened all along through history. We see wicked people prospering and righteous people suffering. Observationally, Bildad should have seen exactly what Job has seen and exactly, exactly what we have seen. If we were to take Bildad's same stance and say, all those before us have searched this out and it's obvious and true, wouldn't we say it's obvious and true that sometimes bad people get away with it? That gentleman I just referenced in Great Britain, there were zero consequences, not one court case, not one criminal charge against him, and he died a hero. The wicked prosper. The righteous suffer. Bildad should have known this, and so should we. Secondarily, tradition is unreliable. Now, we'll see this in Colossians in the New Testament, but it's just as true then. Listen, as we get older, we recognize that we stand on the shoulders of those that have gone before us. We stand on them joyfully. We realize theologically we've learned things, but tradition is unreliable as a source of authority. It just is. I'm so thankful for the Reformation and Martin Luther, for example. Great reformer, right? Um, fights against the the, the Roman Catholic Church, nails 95 theses to the door at Wittenberg, um, stands for truth, stands against penance and all these kinds of things. And later in his life, and we're frankly not sure if it was senility or what was going on, but the Nazis were able to use exact quotes from Martin Luther to excuse their genocide of the Jews because of things he wrote against the Jews. Like I said, we don't know. Was it mental illness? Was it sickness? Was it old age? We don't know. But Martin Luther was not 100% right. No man is. It should be easy to understand tradition is not a trustworthy source of authority. But then thirdly, there's confirmation bias. What do we mean by that? Confirmation bias is we hold to a belief system and then we look for evidence or we interpret evidence to support what we already believe. I believe X and so I start interpreting everything to support X. And this is exactly what Bildad is doing. Bildad believes this, and so now he interprets what he sees happening to match what he already believes is the truth. Maybe the best way for you to understand that is if you've ever had someone think evil of you, and, and they, they put on these glasses, these lenses, and, and let's just be honest, we do this with others. It's just easier to understand it when it's been done to you, to, to, for the point here of confirmation bias. But you've had somebody, they think evil of you, or, um, and, and they believe something about you. Well, suddenly, everything you do gets interpreted through those lenses. Everything. Like, and you see it with Paul with the Corinthians. They believe something about Paul. 
And so they believe that Paul is in it for himself. He just heavy-handed with his authorities, in it for the money. Uh, he's in it for the power, the prestige, the respect. Paul wants to rule and wants to control. And it's shocking because when you stand outside of it, you look at the objective evidence, you're like, you're crazy. Paul is impoverished, naked, abandoned, beaten. You say he's in it for the power, prestige, and money? And they simply reinterpret the evidence to match what they already believe. It's, called, it's confirmation bias. People do this all the time they ignore facts or they reinterpret them to support what they already believe and so if you've had someone think evil of you you've had that experience if you if you've had an argument with a spouse this way or or a child a sibling a neighbor they they believe x about you for some reason and then when you ask them like why do you believe that they start giving all these supporting evidences and you're like that's not what was going on there that's not what was happening there and it's like you can't prove wrong to them it's confirmation bias we see it all the time. We see it in our culture politically. We see it religiously. Confirmation bias. Bildad should have known better. We should know better. And again, I think it's disastrous when we apply it to others. But I think it's so common that we do this in our own hearts. We suffer something. We assume then. We assume I must have done something wrong to deserve this. And it has just unbelievable, terrifying aspects to it. It's a small thing, but it radically alters everything else. And so this is the source of Bildad's authority, faulty human reason. But now let's go back and let's see what he actually has to say to Job and how he works through it. And so what we see is this tilted scales of evil and suffering. So if you back up verses 4 through 7, let me just start at the start, and I'll walk through the first three verses, so at least we make sure we cover those. Bildad the Shuhite answered and said, How long will you say these things, and the words of your mouth be a great wind? That portion there, we can interpret it one of two ways. I think either one matter it, it is equal. Um, one is what he means by great wind is this is wasted crying. Because Eliphaz talked about the great blast and um, Job talked about the great vexation of my soul and, and its speaking words. And so it could be that Bildad is referencing the cries and the groanings and the complaints of Job and he's liking them to have a great wind, really that just blows and it's gone. It's worthless. It could be that. Or it could be that Job's accusations are like a great wind that will tear down the foundations of right theology. Either one. The, in the language, it's, it's a strong complaint. It's angry. This is not kindness here. Does God pervert justice? Or does the Almighty pervert the right? And there's the problem. So he's telling you, this is what my sermon is addressing. Your accusation that God is unjust. God's unjust because you're claiming your suffering is unjust. And so let me address that. Verses, start picking up then verse 4. If your children have sinned against him, and I just want to again say, like how many times are these guys going to bring up his 10 dead kids? Are you kidding me? If your children have sinned against him, he has delivered them into the hand of their transgression. If you will seek God and plead with the Almighty for mercy, if you are pure and upright, surely then he will rouse himself for you and restore your rightful habitation. And though your beginning was small, your latter days will be very great. And so in Bildad's economy, Job's kids are way at the far end of the spectrum. We don't know what your kids did. We don't know how they did it. 
You don't know what they did, but clearly what they did was so bad, the only answer was kill them on the spot and kill them all at the same time. What evil could they have done to wipe them all out at the same time? That's Bildad's accusation. And Job, you're just slightly better. You're slightly better because while he killed your kids in an instant, he's permitting you to suffer, and it's while your suffering is bad, that's just reflective of how bad you are. But if you'll repent, then you'll be rescued. Now where then does that put Bildad and his friends? They've still got their money, they've still got their wealth, they've still got their health. They're at that end. And you immediately see the self-righteousness of it. How often have we assumed, when others are suffering, that God is somehow angry, upset, or mad at them, and he must be, he must then be, happier or more pleased with me. Or, when you've preached this to your own heart, when this error has worked its way into its own heart, God, why do you love so-and-so more than me? Why are you kinder to them than me? What could I do to earn your favor? The implication, greater the sin, greater the suffering. Greater the righteousness, greater the reward. Now, so let's take this out of the theological clouds maybe for a second here. What happens if a culture or a society believes that you deserve your suffering? That extreme suffering is actually a demonstration of extreme wickedness. We can consider Mother Teresa for a second, just to see this. She served the lepers of India who had no one to care for them, the dispossessed, the outcast, the downtrodden. She's been sainted by the Roman Catholic Church in recent years. And yet in Roman Catholicism, there's the belief that suffering here is a kind of penance for our sins. And so they interpret, when Paul later says that we fill up the sufferings of Christ, they interpret that to mean that all good Christians will suffer and you need to suffer in part to join the suffering of Jesus to make payment for your sins. This is why some of them, some of the sects, S-E-C-T-S of Roman Catholicism, have self-flagellation. They will whip themselves and beat themselves. Uh, One famous uh, Roman uh, Catholic monk used to go and roll in rose bushes to punish himself, to suffer, to make payment for his sins. Because if you've done bad, you should suffer bad. And they believe that the voluntary or even involuntary suffering here will lessen how much time you spend in purgatory. And so here Mother Teresa is caring for suffering people, but she is operating out of a religious system that believes their suffering is really the best thing for them. And so exposés and books began to come out about Mother Teresa's work after she died, and suddenly it starts to be revealed that many of the people in her care received substandard care horrifically substandard care unclean conditions lack of food lack of sanitation and people would raise money and send money for pain medications and she would order her people to withhold pain medication from suffering people one dear lady was in the throes of intense pain begging for relief the story is told that mother Teresa leaned down to her And she said, the greater your suffering, the closer the kiss of Jesus. And the lady said, then please tell Jesus to stop kissing me. 
What happens when you believe your suffering is deserved? What's interesting is she's operating in a culture that was ruled by Hinduism that has a caste system that believes if you're born in a lower caste and they have deplorable conditions, no justice, no access to courts, they do the worst of the worst kind of jobs, many of them die with starvation, there aren't even numbers for how many folks in the lower caste systems of Hinduism die because they don't care. Well, you deserve it. This is why they can go by and there's street children begging and begging and begging and begging and they just ignore them because they believe you've earned it. You deserve to starve to death. You deserve to be abused because you must have been the worst kind of person in a previous life. What happens when we believe that suffering is always someone's fault and the greater their suffering, the greater their bad? This is Bildad's theology. They can't see or know what Job's children did, but obviously it was worse than what Job did. And it frees Bildad. It releases him from needing to be compassionate, loving, kind, or supportive. What he's ultimately saying is, Job, you deserve this. How egregious there are aspects of christianity and christians who believe this little evil this error in their theology i wonder if there have been people in your life god has brought into your life who are suffering and you have withheld love and care and compassion and tenderness and if part of the error is your own heart that has believed they must deserve this And again, maybe not towards others, but maybe towards yourself. So Bildad presses on, though, because there's a problem in his theology, and he recognizes it, and he's got to answer it. And here's the problem. But Job was the most successful guy of all. So if bad gets bad and good gets good, how was Job so successful? And so Bildad's got an answer for that, and he's got to address this flaw in his thinking. And so he believes that wickedness or suffering matches, suffering matches the depth of your wickedness. How do you account for Job's previous success? And so he gives this illustration, starts in verse 11, goes down through verse 15. He gives a positive one or negative one, then he gives a positive one. He says this, Can papyrus grow where there is no marsh? Can reeds flourish where there is no water? While yet in flower and not cut down, they wither before any other plant. Such are the paths of all who forget God. The hope of the godless shall perish his confidence is severed, and his trust is a spider's web. He leans against his house, but it does not stand. He lays hold of it, but it does not endure. And so he's referencing this plant, and this plant goes, grows along the, the Nile River. And it's a large reed, and they grow faster than the other plant. Uh, they can grow 8 to 10 feet tall, and they flower or bloom out very, very quickly. And the problem, though, with the reed plant is... the Almost immediately, if the water source dries up, they die instantaneously. And they fall over. It's an ugly sight. All the other vegetation around it continues to last because its roots go deep enough that it can continue to get moisture out of the soil. They're hardier plants. They, they're more drought resistant, but not the reeds. His picture then is this. Job, you were like a reed. <laughs> you sprang up super quickly. You flourished but then you forgot God. Just like the reed, the, the, it, its roots don't get to the water anymore, 
Job, when you got wealthy and successful, you got proud and you got arrogant and you forgot to trust in God. Such are the paths of all who forget God. The hope of the godless shall perish. And so what he's telling Job is, I don't know what all evil you've done, but I know this evil you did, Job. Job, you served God as long as you were blessed. And then in the height of your success, you forgot him. Now I want to ask you, does that sound like something anyone else has said in the book of Job so far? It's exactly the accusation that Satan said would happen. Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him in his house, all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. (laughs) Eliphaz operates out of this vision that as we unpacked it, it really was a vision of a demon maybe even Satan himself. And that's the source of his authority. And I find it interesting that Bildad's accusation matches Satan's accusation. How common, we, how, how common it is that we accept theological error and we don't see its source. And it's from the wicked one. It's from the enemy. It's not righteous. It's not humble when you and I think in the midst of puzzling pain, what have I done to deserve this? I, I must have done something. Let me grocery list down. Let me ask forgiveness for all these things. That's not righteous or humble. It is a work of the enemy. And, it, and I want to be very clear. I'm talking about puzzling pain. I'm not talking about the disciplined hand of God, Hebrews 12. I'm not talking about you clearly are doing something unrighteous, sinful, and God lovingly corrects you and you can see exactly what it is. I'm talking about the kind of pain that enters our life that there's, a, there's no obvious source. We don't know where it's coming from. We don't know why it's happened. There doesn't seem to be a clear lesson in it. It just hurts. And Bildad says that doesn't exist. And he actually agrees with Satan. Wipe it out, and you know what will be proven? He's forgotten you. He's only in it for himself. And that's what what Bildad is accusing Job of. You were in it for yourself. So once you sprang up and you were flowered and you were 8 to 10 feet tall and you were taller than anyone else in the land and everyone respected you, then you forgot who God was and now you're suffering. That's his negative illustration, but then he gives a positive illustration in verses 16 through 19. He is a lush plant before the sun. His shoots spread over his garden. His roots entwine the stone heap. He looks upon a house of stones. If he's destroyed from his place, then it will deny him, saying, I've never seen you. Behold, this is the joy of his way, and out of the soil others will spring. It's a little bit more complex and confusing. But what he's doing is he's saying you have this other plant, and it's planted, and when its roots hit stone, normally we think of of that killing plants, shallow soil, how's it going to survive? Instead, the kind of plant that remembers God, the obstacles of its life, it just wraps around them, and actually because its roots are entwined around the stones, it actually makes it stronger and harder to pull out. Job, you could be like this which is another way of Bildad saying, you could be like me. Job, this this could be just a hiccup in your life. This season of suffering, the loss of your 10 kids, the loss of everything, the abandonment of your wife, the loss of your health, it could just be a hiccup for you that makes you stronger and ends up with you shading others and these other plants that spring up would probably indicate even being restored with children. We could be tempted to think that 
Bildad must be right because we see Job ultimately restored. This leads to Job's plea or Bildad's plea in verses 20 through 22. So these illustrations, this belief. So what is he calling Job to do? Behold, God will not reject a blameless man, nor take the hand of evildoers. And I just want to pause. Remember, God has already said he's blameless. He will yet fill your mouth with laughter, your lips with shouting. Those who hate you will be clothed with shame, and the tent of the wicked will be no more. We might be tempted to think Bildad must be right since Job ultimately is restored. But I want to remind you that God makes it very clear at the end of the book that his friends had it all wrong. Job's restoration is not a result of repentance. He didn't have sin to repent of to be restored. It was simply a result of God's grace and kindness. And so he leaves Job with this moment. And one other pause here. One of the things that you see his friends deal with lightly, and, I, and I, so I give this as a caution, is they consistently minimize the depth of his pain. Consistently. That's why they're so free to reference the death of his children. They refuse to enter his suffering. They don't want to learn about it. They don't want to hear of it. They want him to stop talking. It's like a great wind. And one of the lessons that we must consistently learn as we work our way through his friends is this. We are called as good friends to actually enter the pain and the suffering of others. Ask them, what is it like? Let them speak freely to you without judgment. Let them expose the terrors and fears of their heart. Engage with them till you weep with them. Sit with them in the ash heap and hear from them. Ask them about the language of grief that God is teaching them. Ask them how it affects them in different seasons of life, different seasons of the year, different days of the month, different places on the planet. You'll begin to learn things like this. The deeply grieving, sometimes it's attached to physical locations they don't ever want to go back to. Sometimes it's attached to songs, events, stories, movies, places, time you'll learn that sometimes they feel strong and other times they feel unbelievably weak what job's friends consistently do is minimize his pain and it's part of what frees them to be so callous we must never do this with the suffering of others there's a, another implication then to Job's sermon. And what it does is it steals grace from Job. It's finished off in those final verses with this plea for Job to repent. And it actually presents what we call a, a diptych. I didn't know this before this week. And it's a strong contrast between two things, typically good and evil. And you can see it in, in his plea God won't reject a blameless man nor take the hand of evildoers. So the, the belief is um, he won't push you away, but he, he will grab hold of these. And, 
And so we have this strong, stunning contrast. He'll fill your mouth with laughter and your lips with shouting. Those who hate you will be clothed with shame, and the tent of the wicked will be no more. And the contrast, again, is like you'll speak, they'll be silent. You'll have a household, they'll have nothing. And it's this stunning contrast, except his is this damning one. Eliphaz's errors, you might remember, removed the hope of any mediator for Job. Eliphaz's error said, there is no holy one to stand for you. There is no mediator to stand before God on your behalf. They removed the Messiah from Job's suffering. If there's one thing suffering people need to be reminded of, is he even takes the groanings of their prayers that they can't even form words, and they're made into righteous prayers. There is a mediator. There is one who stands on your behalf. There is one, and Paul references this even in 2 Corinthians 4 when he talks about that I think very little of your judgment of me. He says, instead, my own conscience is clear, but I don't even trust my own conscience. I'll answer to God one day. And what he's resting in is he'll answer to God through the righteousness of Christ. Satan is not done afflicting Job. And so through Eliphaz, he wanted to remove the hope of a mediator. Well, Bildad sets up this, this damning contrast, and what he robs Job of is grace. Let me walk you through that and show you that. And we can do it with these if-then statements. First of all, if all suffering is for my wrongs, then there is never undeserved suffering. And that's Bildad's point. Job, all suffering, do bad, get bad. <laughs> do good, get good. So if you're suffering, all suffering, every suffering on the planet, and, and, and it's, he has more in common with Hinduism, Islam, and bad Judaism at that moment than he has with anything related to the Bible. All suffering, all suffering is wrong. So what that means is there's never undeserved suffering. So when Bildad thinks of 10 kids killed in a, in a windstorm house, his assumption then is those 10 kids were doing something so wicked so vile, so hidden, God had to wipe them out. I remember being raised in, in church, right? In the massive Ethiopian famines. And there's all these starving people. And I remember hearing in church, they deserve it because they're Islamic. Now, I'll just be honest with you. I don't know if that's God's wrath on them or not. What I do know is Christ calls us to bring the gospel with its love even to those that are suffering. And if, that, if that's hard for you, then I would remind you of Jesus saying these words. One day he will reward people who minister to those in prison, who are suffering as a direct result of what they've done wrong. And he will say, you did it to me. So why, why on earth and how on earth do we at times free ourselves from the care of the suffering by simply assuming they deserve it. It's not Christ-like. It's not godly. 
And it has a lot more to do with Bildad than it ever has to do with Jesus. It assumes I'm not suffering that way because I haven't done wrong that way. They're suffering that way because they've done wrong that way. If there's no, if all suffering is for my wrongs, then there's no undeserved suffering. Well, if there's no undeserved suffering, then there can be no redemptive suffering. Was Jesus' suffering, did he deserve it? No. Jesus never sinned once. Not one time. He did nothing wrong. If, there's, if all suffering is for my wrongs, there's no room for puzzling pain. All suffering is earned and deserved. There's no other purpose. It can teach, correct, grow, and change you, but you have earned it. But then there's no suffering in the place of another. There's no room for Jesus suffering for you and for me. There's no room for Jesus suffering for Job. If there's no redemptive suffering, we're left here to try to save ourselves. If we're left to save ourselves, then there's no grace for us. And it's only a matter of time before the axe of God's wrath falls on us. If there's no redemptive suffering, then there can be no grace from the cross. Luke 22. Now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him as they beat him. They also blindfolded him and kept asking him, prophesy, who is it that struck you? And they said many other things against him, blaspheming him to these people that were beating jesus he isn't a healing loving prophet he deserves this beating it plays out in pilate's internal tension because he can't find any real guilt in jesus luke 23 pilate addressed them once more desiring to release jesus but they kept shouting crucify crucify him a third time he said to them why what evil has he done i found in him no guilt deserving death i will therefore punish and release him but they were urgent, demanding with loud voices that he should be crucified, and their voices prevailed. Even the religious leaders joined in in the mockery. Luke 23, later, and the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself. He is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. These are the words of our hearts in suffering toward ourselves. There is no grace for the puzzling pain because we've believed this little error that it's so simplistic that all suffering is earned. We must have done something to deserve this. When Bildad presses this at Job, and when we press this on ourselves or others, we have been robbed of grace. In a world where there is no undeserved suffering, we eliminate the suffering of the innocent Christ on our behalf. Instead, instead, puzzling pain should point us to Christ. Undeserved suffering reminds us that one suffered not for himself, but for me, puzzling praying is breaking in a person's soul and mind and heart. It can feel so crushing, and our only hope in the midst of puzzling pain, our only hope is grace. God, give me grace. In that moment, when we understand that and we embrace it, we can become like the other thief on the cross. He knew he deserved his suffering. He says, the other rebuked him, saying, do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence 
of condemnation. And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He said to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Now to the one suffering puzzling pain, I want to say this. You're suffering. I don't know all that it is. I don't know why. I don't know how it will work out from here. But I know this. Your puzzling pain is an echo. It's a reflection. It's a reminder that there was another one who suffered for nothing that he had done. And his suffering that he didn't deserve promises you it's not because God is against you. It brought you grace. Only because Christ has experienced undeserved suffering am I free to embrace Romans 5 that tells me this is not God's wrath against me. In the midst of puzzling pain, it feels absolutely impossible to put one foot in front of the other. It feels too hard in puzzling pain to get up in the morning, to go to work, to do another day, to make dinner, to teach your kids, to care for a spouse, to be friendly, to come to church, to slap a smile on. In the midst of puzzling pain, you realize that you have no strength. It is breaking like few other things do. You see, because if I can point to a cause of my pain, then I feel like I can fix it. But in puzzling pain, what's the fix? And there's one hope and there's one answer. Grace. And so Paul said that when he is weak, then he is strong because of Christ's strength. And what is the source of that strength? The grace of God. Small errors about suffering can have disastrous effects in life. Yours and mine. I want to call you to the truth that puzzling pain points us to the grace of Christ at the cross.